Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Today's going to be a little unusual. It's... um. Monday afternoon. Um, I do not have a sponsor for this one. I was thinking of not doing it, but some people wrote to me. Friends of mine asked me to do it anyway, so I will. And uh, I can't really wait till later in the week to see if we get a sponsor because I have college starting tomorrow. I'll be up to my neck with uh, first week of uh, first semester, especially in the new Zoom era. So uh, I'm just going to take advantage of it, do it now, and bite the bullet. Uh, I hope next week we'll have a sponsor. And um, in general, I'm trying to raise sponsorships now for this um, lecture series I mentioned last week I'm planning to do on Motzei Shabbos, meaning those of you now from Baltimore, I do 10, 20, something between that, uh, talks on Saturday nights on Motzei Shabbos during the winter here in Baltimore, usually for a live audience. And we always cover four years of history of modern uh, Israel and modern Jewish people, so this year, Mir Hashem, I planned to do 1984 to 88, which is not that long ago, but it was already a long time ago. A lot of the actors from that time are no longer here. Um, but anyway, that's my plan. I have about 15 talks scheduled with about 7 or 8 covered, sponsored, for which I thank the sponsors. I'm looking for another 7 or 8 or something like that. 7, I guess. Um, I hope though, I hope I will be able to raise that. Uh, but anyway, without any further ado, not what you're here for. Um, I didn't know who to talk about this week, and we're not really in a mood. I was away out of town for a couple of days at my uh, kid's house. And, um, anyway, to make a long story short, I opened the computer this morning, and I am a member of one of these academic groups where they send out sometimes different papers on academic Jewish uh, studies. And, you know, some are better and some are worse. Some are worse. <laughs> They're often worse. But I saw a very interesting one that caught my attention today, sufficiently so that I said, you know, the heck with it, I'll just talk about it. And, I'll, and I'm talking about Dutch Jewry, which I don't think is something I've ever discussed. I don't think so, anyway. Not off my head. We talk about German Jews and Polish Jews and Spartans sometimes and this and that and the other, but not about the Dutch. Uh, which is interesting because uh, Holland has had an interesting Jewish community since the 1600s, very early, very, very early 1600s. Um, I can't say it's a major one, but you could disagree with me. No, you couldn't. Uh, not really a major one, except that it caught the imagination of the world in the 1600s when you had the, the Muranos there. But Dutch Jewry, whatever, always been somewhat schwach. Which is exactly why I found this uh, dissertation that someone shared from some lady, some female uh, professor, uh, who did a, a, an interesting at the University of Groningen, did an interesting uh, talk uh, dissertation. It seems to me on um, on what he called on uh, let, let's put it this way uh, important chapters when the Dutch switch 
from from to something other than from. Those those terms themselves I have to define. And it caught my attention. I'll just share a few points with you. After all, I have to talk for a couple hours. So let me say this. Um, Professor Radiker, I think her name is, something like that. And uh, uh, I have something specific in mind. Uh, Once upon a time, there were no Jews in Holland, in, in the Netherlands. That whole area was usher for Jews to live in. That was up to the 1600s, um, when it was ruled by Spain, and before that, it was just an area that j- simply did not choose to allow Jews in. Uh, and then, um, with the rise of the Dutch Republic, they broke away, they rebelled against uh, Spain. The Dutch did, and had an 80 years long uh, war of independence, that's a long time. By the time it's over, they gained their independence, and as part of the process, they start allowing in what you and I would call today converses and Muranos, right? Uh, and this is the famous community of Menashev in Israel and all that in the 1600s. I think that one gets a lot of attention among people. Because just romantic, everybody in the community was born a Catholic and then ran away from the Inquisition in one way or the other, and these people ended up in Holland. Shine. However, that's the Sephardi community, the Spanish-Portuguese community. But the larger community that developed in Amsterdam and in Holland in general, I'm going to use the word Holland, even the technical term is the Netherlands. Holland is like one of the states in the Netherlands, one of the provinces. But that's how we talk in America. So I'll just use that, uh, even though it's not the right word to use. Uh, so uh, the majority of the, the Jews in Holland and the Netherlands were Ashkenazi Jews who immigrated to um, the Netherlands Precisely because it was less anti-Semitic, and uh, a lot of them were running away from the Chmelnitsky pogroms, believe it or not. This new book that I mentioned the other day from Professor Teller uh, has a nice chapter about that. The Vilna Gong's ancestor, the one who wrote the thing on the side of the Shulchan, what's it called? The Be'er, uh, Be'er something, Moshe Rifkis, you know, you know, with the footnotes. That, uh, what do you call it? He, he's one of the refugees there. And there developed, this, I would say, a sizable, I mean, mamish a sizable Jewish Ashkenazic population, uh, Germans and Poles, Yekis and, and, and Polish, uh, in the 16, especially 1700s. The problem is, there's a lot of poverty. And uh, there developed Ashkenazic Kehillahs, they certainly did. But they had all the plus and minuses of the Ashkenazic Kehillahs of old. And our story today has to do with the minuses. Because the plus is, is you run everything according to the din. But that's only half the story of life. Uh, there used to be a lot of anal aspects to the way Cahills were run long ago. Some survive in a few places even today. And what I'm referring to is not something in, t- in terms of violating the Shulchan Aruch, but it's being a jerk. So a, a classic example I'm talking about is in an old-fashioned Cahill of yesteryear, long ago, only the rich have any say to do in the community. You understand? The well-to-do or the well-connected. And that expresses itself. Nobody gets an aliyah. The same guys get an aliyah every week. I know it sounds like a little thing. The only people who get the kabunim, hagvaglil, it's the same group. And the reason is, they pay for it. Why do they pay for it? They used to bid, right? They used to bid. Once you do, what they go, shnadrig, mishanadr. Once you do bidding, I know it brings an achnosa to the shul, and that was the defense of it, but it also means that for most of the time, the poor little schnook out there simply can't afford getting an aliyah. So maybe once a year on, uh, you know, I don't know, a yard site or something like getting a leaf. I mean, this is what life was like. I myself in my lifetime, and I'm not going to name names, obviously, excuse me, obviously, 
I've seen certain shows unnamed in which you see these old guys they won't give anybody a leah. And the young guys wanted to get a leah sometimes. They make a youth shop or something. Oh, they wouldn't do it. They're very anal, very, very stupid, right? Uh, they wanted to hog all the dominating. They want to hog all of this and, you know, they always beat about filler and everything like that. It's a certain mentality. It's not American. I don't see it as an American show. It's not the American way. You know we, 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 we aren't living that way. The spirit of democracy has entered the firm world, even in this country, at least as far as I can see. That, you know, it's not exactly around the way. But I don't know. I have been around in a lot of places. I'm talking about from my narrow experience in Baltimore. Maybe in other towns, maybe it still goes like that. You know, I mean, the rich always run a, a, a big chalik of the, how, how a community's run. So, you know, this is how it goes. I remember years ago, I read, where, how did the first Iray Minion start in New York long ago? It wasn't a from kind of thing. It was the young people want to get a lead. They say, we're Orthodox. We want to be from. How many young people our age want to be from? And anytime we go to one of these shuls or stables on Lower East Side, they never give you an lead. They never give you anything. They don't acknowledge you're there. And it was a turnoff. And they, they said, the young guys made together at Siri. That was a from thing. That's at Siri. I got it. To so Kabbalah Kamer, you know, in, in other conditions. So he had this problem in Holland. Now, uh, so you have a lot of poverty. You have a tiny group of rich people. And uh, the Kehillah is run by the rich people, according to the Shulchan Aruch, and but on the other hand, they try to dominate the rabbi, you know, that sort of thing. They would bring in, I should say this, you know, certainly competent rabbonim, used to import them from Poland, places like that. Some famous names are, are in this, you know, the Binyan Ariel and others. Uh, and uh, who's the one I like? Raleigh Breslau. Yeah, they had some, uh, you know, big names. But uh, usually, you know, the rabbi's job is the Paschal, the Parnosim, as they call them, run, Run, run the show. And then came Moses Mendelssohn and the Enlightenment. Now, you you out there think Mendelssohn was like a first Reformed Jew. He's anti and this and that. It's not so much at all. It's very complicated. Anybody talks to me about Moses Mendelssohn in an uncomplicated way, they simply don't know what they're talking about. You understand? They were from, they want to stay from, but in a different way. You understand? They want to introduce more, shall we say, Maimonideanism, and other things like that into the from kite. So in other words, not to get rid of the mitzvahs, okay, you hear what I'm saying? Not to get rid of the mitzvahs, and all that, but to rearrange matters. Some places more, some places less. And eventually, this leads to development of what I always define in my courses as an important distinction you have to draw between the movement to reform Judaism A and movement to reform Judaism B. What you call... Uh, reform Judaism in your mind, you listeners out there, is whether Reform B. That was to start a new movement within Judaism, a separate religion, if you wish, based on the Ani Loma means and all the rest of it. And that certainly eventually developed, primarily in Germany in the 1830s and 40s. That's what that is. But totally separate from that, not completely unconnected with that, but totally separate from that, was what I call Reform A. Reform A was people want changes in how Jewish life is run doesn't necessarily mean they don't believe in the Torah anymore. doesn't necessarily mean they want to change everything, but they want some changes, okay? And this was a movement that started to gain uh, traction in the Enlightenment period in the 18th century, particularly in Western Europe, among some people. Obviously, you don't have to be a genius to figure out in any community if there are people who are going to advocate the type of, of reforms or changes I just defined, it's going to be people on the out and not on the in. The rich people, they say, why should we change the Mishnah situation? That way we control all the Aliyahs. That way we control the Kibunim. 
That way we get to be the only ones who vote for a rabbi or for this sort of salary or anything like that. So it's the people in the outs. You understand? People in the outs. These would be people who have a parnosa of their own, but they don't like the way the, the Kehillah is run. For one reason or another. Nothing I said un, until now has anything with breaking anything in the Shulchan Aruch. It's got nothing to do with that. Uh, and so they developed in different places in Europe, Western Europe particularly, intellectuals who challenge in, in writing the status quo. I'm going to confine my remarks to Holland today because that's what we're talking about. Uh, the uh, late 18th century and the rise of the French Revolution intensified the feelings of people that the old system was wrong. After all, in France, they wiped out the nobles and killed the king. So this kind of notion spread everywhere. Each Medina, according to its Madriga, and each Jewish community, according to its Madriga. So in Amsterdam and Holland, those cities over there, Rotterdam and the others, it's very interesting. They developed um, a whole stratum of people, not the rove, who said, we don't like the way the, the shoals are run. We don't like the way the davening is done. We don't like the, like the way the richie riches run everything, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and we want changes. Okay? And uh, it so happens that, here I'm going to get a little bit into, too much into secular history, but Holland, Netherlands, had an up-and-down situation in the 1790s and the early 1800s. This is the time of the French Revolution, plus Napoleon. And uh, in both cases, the French overran uh, Holland, because it's next door, it's right to Belgium. Belgium was annexed uh, by France during the time of the 1790s in the French Republic. There was a time when uh, the French, through the successes of their armies in 1790s, uh, the French Revolutionary Armies actually conquered up to the Rhine. And if they would have stopped there, they maybe would have had a bigger France even today. Uh, and that would have included the Rhineland in Belgium. So in the period I'm talking about, Belgium was part of France. But right across the river is Holland, is, ne is the Netherlands. And so eventually the French took it over. First the French armies under the Republic. And then Napoleon uh, added it to the French Empire. He gave it to his brother to be a king there. And I think he took it back, if I remember correctly, and added it to the France again. So it went through a lot of upheavals. And in the course of all this, they brought in the French Revolutionary ideas. And this percolated in its own unique way to the Ashkenazi Jewish community. And uh, this led to the people in the out, or at least some of them, saying, just like the guy made a revolution, we want to make a revolution. Not to kill anybody, but to break the hold of the Kehillah on us. And uh, they started what they call the new Kehillah, the Nihilah as opposed to the old killer. And I'm always laughing, because this is Dutch-Yiddish. So they say the new killer and the old killer. <laughs> you know, Yiddish, a killer is a hernia, you know, the old hernia and the new hernia. But it's a, it's, it's a Yiddish dialect. And um, so the result is you had a lot of upheavals over here. Now, all this late, same thing happened in France, by the way. It happened in a number of places in Western Europe. This is a story not so well known. And these people... I would say from 1800 to 1850, hear what I said? Or 1860, formed the element Jewish community that was always pushing to the left. Right? Always pushing to the left. In each country in its own way. Now, some of these things to the left are unobjectionable. But eventually, it was going to lead to changes in the Din and the Shulchan Aruch. No, eventually, Reform A led to Reform B in many places. Not always, right? Not always. Um, in Germany, you might say the Hirsch community in Frankfurt was a reform a community of a certain sort. They introduced all kinds of changes, things I guess. Obviously, 100% within the halacha. 100%. And with Hirsch, you have the, you know, the 
Dikduk mitzvahs and all that it's made from. In a lot of the places, it wasn't like that. Uh, people just want to introduce changes based on westernization notions. Um, if you're in Holland, you say, look at the Spanish-Portuguese Jews. Ever since they have arrived here in the 1600s, they don't dress funny, they don't talk Yiddish, they very much acculturated, assimilated, even though they remain Jewish. Right? And many of them keep kosher and Shabbos, all the rest of it. So it's possible to, uh, shall we say, assimilate or integrate into the Geisha life and still retain your identity, as opposed to the old-fashioned from ones who say we're separate people, we live within our own world, you know, we five rich Jews want to dominate the rest of me, but live separately uh, apart from everybody else. So a lot of ideas in play over there. Now, in France and Western Germany, many, many places, England too, to be perfectly honest, what happened as a result of what I'm talking about is that in the 1800s, the way things developed, um, in most places, you didn't actually get a reform Judaism as a separate movement, but the reform element succeeded in very strongly weakening uh, the Orthodox community. So, now as you, rem- you ended up with a shvach, an anemic Orthodoxy. One thinks of the old United Synagogue of yesteryear in England. One thinks of the, uh, the French equivalent. And in Holland, and in the, you know, many German states, and places like that, Italy later also. <laughs> this was the trend of the 1800s. I would call it the bourgeois movement. The middle class want to impose middle class values and restructure Judaism in its own image. And Judaism, at the end of the day, is not a middle class uh, phenomenon. Now, you and I are all middle class, and uh, you know we do act in a certain way, in a middle class way, even in our practice of Judaism. But the middle class European, especially 19th century, um, whole notion of culture is not identical with what you find in the Torah. It just isn't. It's either you cut and paste, which is what they used to do in the 19th century, or you admit that there are dissonances. Um, you know, this is stupid what I'm going to say, but I'll say it anyway. A classic example, and this is controversial, classic example of a, of a Torah, let me put it this, of a Haredi violation of middle-class principles. Some of you will get offended by this. A Haredi violation of middle-class principles is the whole idea of sitting and learning and calling not going to get a job. Right? Or the wife working, the husband learning. What the heck is that? You know, that violates the Ten Commandments of the middle class. Middle class is the husband supposed to support the family, you know, not like that. Either about the wife shouldn't work. You know, that sort of way of doing it. Uh, the whole Kolel movement in the post-war period, since 1945, is a certain type of cultural rebellion against the middle class, you know, uh, cultural values. Listen, it has a whole discussion by itself. But getting back to Holland, so... What's interesting to me is that the way things should have gone was that everything should have been totally geschwacht, like happened in France, for example, or Belgium, or Italy, or many other places in Western Europe, you know, Scandinavia, that uh, the Judaism didn't necessarily go officially reform, but the Orthodox ended up being schwach beyond belief. <laughs> That's how I would regard it, schwach beyond belief. And, uh, and this is the way it went. Now, in Holland, and here's the person I want to talk about today, Holland, it didn't develop that way because of a funny, um, a funny uh, development. Uh, funny uh, coincidence, shall you say. There happened to be a certain family, the Leyron family, who were rich, and members of the, uh, very rich, 
had a big bank. They're members of the upper class. And uh, they were super anti-reform and super from. And they dug in their heels and fought tooth and nail against any kind of uh, development of reform movement in official way in Holland. And they mightily retarded it and, and, and screwed it over. By the time they were finished, you couldn't develop a genuine reform Judaism or anything like that, another form of Judaism in Holland. And as a result of what they did down to the Second World War, uh, the Dutch remained a country where Judaism may have been schwach, not schwach, as I'll discuss in a, sec- in a second, but uh, but it's, it's within, the, within the Dalai Lama's of Orthodoxy, very much so. And I consider that a very interesting story. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning this to you is, I don't know what Yard said is this week, but she, this uh, lady who wrote this, uh, uh, dis- I think it's a dissertation, maybe it's a book based on dissertation, that's probably more what it is, uh, she put put in uh, uh, a lot of research into the Orthodox things, which she can read Dutch and I can't. And so a lot of the information is in the Dutch uh, archives, and I found it very interesting, uh, especially the uh, description, although she gets a lot of things wrong, you know, when you're outsider, you don't understand a lot of things, what Hasidism is and all that, but it doesn't matter. She had a lot of very interesting things on um, on this family, Laren. And uh, that's what I wanted to talk about uh, today in an interesting way. Now, uh, the Laren brothers, I think it was uh, Hirsch and Akiva and another one, uh, were very well known in the 19th century. You find them in Sfarm. You find them in the Shalas and Shubas. Not because they were great Talmud Chacham. Well, then they may have been. You know, they, they knew how to learn. No question about it. Um, but they got involved very much in Jewish politics in the broadest sense. I'll, I'll, I'll go off a little bit and talk to you how Hirsch Lehrman and Akiva Lehrman are mostly known in Jewish history. And that has to do with Eretz Yisrael. Right? Eretz Yisrael. Um, I think, if you remember... Not that I expect you remember. I I think I long did ago the uh, brother-in-law of the best. What's the name? Uh, 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 eh, escapes me. But uh, the brother-in-law of Shemto, uh, Kutuber, Avram Gershon Kutuber, and he made Aliyah in uh, the 1700s, middle 1700s. And the point I told there was a whole story. I don't want to rehearse it again, but the original Jews who lived in Palestine in the early 1700s were financially irresponsible. They ran up crazy debts, but it couldn't pay them. And by the time it's over, the Ashkenazes were destroyed by the creditors. Was the Arabs who had lent the money, the Armenians and the Greeks, came and either killed them or, uh, or tortured them or stuff like that because uh, they didn't get paid. And it came up to be a thing that for decades, no Ashkenazi Jew could show his face in Palestine. And the Sephardim, who weren't as bad as... Um, who weren't as bad as the Ashkenazim in their financial irresponsibility, eventually got there. But when the Sephardim got there, which was around 1740, and uh, they were facing disaster, so that's how it is in Israel. So a bunch of bankers and rich Jews in Istanbul, which was the capital of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which ruled Palestine, they got together very good uh, public-spiritedly, and uh, they said, I guess, we're taking control of all matters of Eretz Yisrael, at least for the Sephardim. And um, they forced the Jewish communities in Palestine to sort of surrender all financial control to this board of directors, uh, Vada Pekidim. And um, from then on, 
from like the 1740s to like the early 1800s, nobody could make Aliyah unless he got permission from this Vod in Istanbul, and nobody could spend a penny of public money unless he got permission from the controller appointed by the Vod in Istanbul, who resided in Jerusalem. Now they had businessman control of Inyani Eretz Yisrael, and they were successful, because when you run it like a business, by the way, it's all a shame Shemayim. They didn't make a penny, the opposite. Right? They didn't make a penny. But, um, uh, they did it on what we would call today sound financial uh, principles. There shouldn't be stealing of the money, shouldn't have Mishlochim um, running around back and forth and, uh, you know, everybody claiming to represent the same yeshiva, the same uh, institution. How was anybody supposed to know in the, in the 18th century? And they organized that and fixed all that. Okay, and they did a good job. Ad Kedekach, that the Jewish population doubled and tripled in Israel and uh, under their uh, control. And even the Ashkenazim were able to get in under the wire, um, provided that they pretend to be Spartan. So the first Aliyah, or Aliyot, of Ashkenazi Jews, I repeat, Ashkenazi Jews, starts with the Hasidim, the Talmudim of the Balshantav after the Magad died. They're the first ones, and then later on the Talmudim of the Vilnagon. One we call the Hasidim, the other the Prushim. These are the first of the first. When they came in, if you know the history, I don't want to get too much in detail, they had to pretend to be smart and things like keep a low profile. Now, um, and the, and Devad paid for them, you know. So it's just, it's just interesting. Right? It's a whole long story. Well, let me put it this way. Dashkin Azim were all screwed up. You know, they have no committee in charge. They were, you know, um, uh, you, you were supposed to go through the Sephardi committee. That worked as long as it worked. As long as the Nodavi Huda was alive, to be frank, after he died, you know, the Ashkenazim started uh, champing at the bit, and uh, the Hasidim started getting their own fundraising. Dal the Rebbe was put in jail um, by the Tsar of Russia, officially because he was involved in sending illegal money as the Russians saw it to Israel. Isn't that right? You know, things like that. So by the time you get to around the year 1800 or so, some Ashkenazi Jews scattered throughout Western Europe I'm talking about businessmen with a big uh, idea. They said, we should have our committee. You see? The Sephardim did a good job, but they're Sephardim. They're going to take care of their own, naturally. No, no times with them. Even though they claim to take care of everybody, but it's just a natural thing. You're going to be Sephardim. We should have our own. And we should do the same thing that they're doing. Centralize all the fundraising, organize and make efficient the administration of the Ashkenazi Yishuv and Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim and elsewhere. They'll put things on a firm footing. And the main guy behind all this was this Liren, uh, Tzvi Hirsch Liren and his brother Akiva, and the third brother, I forget the name. So three guys who were bankers in Amsterdam became, uh, for a long time, decades, the go-to guys for all in Yoni Eretz Yisrael involving money uh, for the what we call the Yishev Uh This is way before Meisharm existed. This is when the Ashkenazim had a hard time, you know, settling wherever they settled and were entirely... Dependent on uh, this committee, which they called the Vada Pekidim Amar Kalim. That's the name they gave it. Vada Pekidim Amar Kalim. It's very well known in history. In recent years, historians have started writing books on this whole thing. Um, you know, some better, some worse, but uh, what's the name is very good. Professor Morgenstern in Israel. Anyway, uh, I think if you want, you know, I'll throw an idea out there. This is just my opinion. I think, you know, the Vilna Gaon passed through Amsterdam in the late 1700s. Uh, he was supposed to make Aliyah to Israel. He got to Amsterdam, and for some reason he turned back. It's a very famous uh, and weird part of the biography of Vilnagon. I think maybe the fact that he went there really fired him up. Mm, Libby Umberly, you know. 
uh, and put the idea of Eretz Yisrael among the firm elements in Amsterdam. I could be wrong. Anyway, so these brothers became the go-to guys, and the Chassam Silver worked with them, all the Gedolim worked with them, and they were from uh, people. They're bankers, they're rich, but they're like millionaires in Amsterdam. And they organized from around 1810 to around 1860, I don't know, something like that, maybe a little later, that all the money that's raised by Ashkenazi communities, notice in Germany and Hungary and in Russia and so forth, England, should go to Amsterdam and he will get the money to Israel. And he'll be in charge that nobody's stealing, nobody's uh, being redundant, you know, all the shtick we are afraid of whenever we give money to a charity. How much is the overhead, you know, 99%? You know, you know, you know how it goes. The guys, I'm collecting for mirror, you know. <laughs> uh, how, do, how do you avoid that? And this guy, uh, these brothers, Laren, so they spent uh, a lot of time, and there are thousands of letters in which they corresponded with every, every rabbi, every this, that, and the other. And, and at that time, this is before the reform movement arose, in, in Form B. So uh, it was just a natural part of being a, a Jew that you put money in the pushka for Israel. You know, do you send a certain amount of money for Israel? And this is how the foundations of the Yishev Yosha were, were laid. You know, all these things you were today comes from these guys. Um, now, I want to say this. Everything I know is very well known in Israeli and Zionist history. The problem with these guys was they were super from, as you see in a second. That's not the problem, but the, the way the from kind developed was along the following lines. We are interested in building a Eretz Yisrael because it's Mashiach site. Here you have a embarrassing episode. Uh, it's not like Shabbat 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 but it's an embarrassing episode of 1840. 1840. They said that the Vilna predicted, and others predicted, and this and the other, the Mashiach come in 1840. And people believed it. So, from Jews. So, if you're talking about the 1810s, 20s, 30s, people, Mamish believed. After all, you, the listener out there, I mean, I don't necessarily know you, but suppose I told you the Vilna Gaon said the, the, the Mashiach is uh, coming in uh, in three weeks. Uh, and you're a Shiva Shagai. Alternatively, if you're a Lubavitcher out there, suppose I told you the Alta Rebbe just said Mashiach come in. You say, wow, this, this is, you know, this is happening. Of course, it didn't happen. So, the mentality, if you're living in 1810, is the Mashiach time is not too far away. We have to start getting Eretz Yisrael ready for that by bringing Jews in. But it's got to be the right type of Jew, and particularly what they had in mind was only somebody's going to be Kulo learning. I'm, that's not an exaggeration on my part. Kulo learning. Tzon Kadashim, as they used to call it. So here you have a particular form of Zionism. Obviously, I don't mean the uh, Herzl Zion. A particular kind of Zionism, which says that Eretz Yisrael should, have, should be peopled by Jews, but only the extremely religious, anybody who's not like that, shouldn't go. You hear what I said? Should not go, stay in Chutzlars. Extremely religious means you're only doing Torah, Ravod, and nothing but. Okay? And when I say that, if you're the Akiva Laren, if you're a Sri Hirsch Laren, it means you can't have a business on the side, you can't sell shekels, you can't have a store, you can't have this and the other. Cool learning. And uh, no luxuries. So let's put it this way. Suppose bare necessities cost you $100 a month. You know, and you could have a family of five kids. So they would calculate, you know. You have two kids, it's this much. Five kids, that much. In other words, enough money for three meals a day, let's say, something like that, but nothing more than that. You know, for one pair of shoes a year or two pairs of shoes a year or something like that, probably one pair, and that's nothing more than that. You know, in other words, meet us, his top goes, 
but imposed from the top down, not from the bottom up. And uh, this retarded uh, any development of a successful Jewish community. Anybody who said, you know, I want to leave a coal and go into learning or something like that, whether you're not going to get a penny, and we're going to fight you. We don't want people like that. Uh, they, they prevented for years they shouldn't establish a Jewish hospital in Jerusalem. He said, well, but the Jews need a hospital. He said, well, if they're a hospital, they'll bring in doctors. Doctors have a non-firm education. They'll corrupt everybody. I hear the VAR, you know, but in other words, they're very afraid of modernity, even though these guys themselves lived in, in, in Amsterdam and were modern in the sense that they were part of the modern European community. It's just an interesting story, right? And uh, eventually, uh, over the course of time, this stuff uh, began to break down because as more Jews moved to Israel, even in these systems, he wanted to be the same thing like um, like this Farnham. Nobody's allowed to move in without me saying, okay. And and he said, and he got the Saab Sofer, who was just a new rabbi in Pressburg, to say that anybody who moves there to Israel without permission from the Vod in Amsterdam is a rodef, because they're taking away a limited amount of funds uh, and taking food out of the mouths of people. It, it's, a, it's a strange system. The great enemies of this system appeared in the 1840s, as in Moses Montefiore and the Rothschilds. They said, no. See, they weren't as from. Uh, Montefiore was from, but not like that, not like the Larens. Uh, Montefiore was just from. He said, why can't you have Jews or farmers? Why can't you have Jews who set up a factory and work in it? Why can't you have Jews who make a mill, you know, like a, what's it called, the windmill, like you go to and things like that. They wanted what they call productivization, you know, that the Jews should develop an economy and uh, there are traces of the Lehrer approach. I've seen the writings of the Munkacher and others. He said, nobody should dare to Israel, Munkacher. Menchus uh, Lazar, unless, you know, uh, they're, they're in the right Madrig. Anybody else is Megarea. Well, you, we have close to 7 million Jews today in Israel. <laughs> they're not all like that. Right? You're going to throw them out? Uh, these are, 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 are unusual notions, but he had his hands on the, on the purse strings, and he wouldn't show anybody how he spent the money. And even though the guy was childless and, you know, he, he was very from and very honest. So, you know, in his lifetime, it's hard to accuse him of doing anything. But he was from the old school, which is, I don't have to show nobody the books of anything. You either trust me or you don't. You know, the Yakish in a way in that way. You'd think the Yisim Nakim would make you open the books. And he wouldn't show, he wouldn't show how the money was spent or how it was all done uh, until he died. He wouldn't do it. And, uh, uh, when he died, his brother opened the books and published it in Europe. They saw he didn't take a penny. And he actually ran things very, um, what's the right word, wisely from an administration point of view, but very tight. You understand? Whoever lived in Israel, by him, you got just what you need and no more. And only when you're sitting and learning. And, you know, if, if anybody didn't, they snitch on you. And it was a, it was a, it, my mom was a crazy uh, system. But to be fair about it, and obviously nobody can go there who's the slightest bit I'm from. The slightest bit I'm from. He said, it's, this is why the original Yisha was so from. Uh, because um, you, in order to get in, you had to pass through these guys. Um, and afterwards, less from people started making Aliyah. That, that is the truth, right? The majority was still very from, but among them were some that weren't. This is the beginnings of the beginnings of the beginnings of modern Israel. And I think you understand where I'm going at in this. Now, she didn't discuss this in this dissertation or this book, whatever it is. Instead, she talked about the experience in Holland itself, in the Netherlands, which was very, very interesting because, to me, because I knew in general, but I didn't know all the little details that she threw in, these brothers 
because they were in a powerful position, they blocked the reform. Well, let's put it this way. They gave the reform a very hard time. And um, they weren't any changes. You know? and on the other hand, uh, the community did change. Um, they didn't go reform. Not like we understand the word, but they introduced certain changes, and they wanted a rabbi who was a more modern guy. To, you know, once upon a time, to give a drusha was considered an extreme reform act. What you take for granted today, in your synagogue usually, because the rabbi gives a drusha and Shabbos, you kind of expect it. Once upon a time, in the early 1800s, was considered like an extreme left-wing act. Right? Probably not there to give drushas. But on the other hand, in modern times, people want a drusha. Um, it could be the drusha better than the dominant. <coughs> the... <coughs> Excuse me. You know, the old Russia books you show me from the past, you know, from the, what's the name, the Olus Ephraim and people like that, Pinalitim, that was they did two, three times a year, you know what I mean? On special occasions, it's not on a Saturday morning. I'm talking about the type of Russia's, I'm talking about Saturday morning. It was a big uh, uh, fight, whether that's a firm thing or not. Uh, or to have it in the middle of davening. You look in the Sherman Sam Balaf, there's a whole question if you do it like when we do in all the shows in America today after, uh, you know what I mean, before Musaf. Are you allowed to do that? Uh, there's a lot of Shilas that have popped up over the years over this. And here's a case where the public has decided, you know, the public has decided the way it wants to go. So uh, here you have these brothers. When the Kehillah moved towards these modern movements, I repeat for the 10th time, it's not exactly against the Shulchanach. Uh, they seceded. They broke away. They set up a minion in their house. The Kehillah, she's got all the, the information there. The Kehillah went crazy. You're not allowed to make a minion in the old days. In America, you take for granted everybody can make whatever minion they want because we live in a country separation church and state. Europe is not like that. Once upon a time, you've got to dive it into local shul. And the, and the Kehillah has one or two or three shuls. If in Amsterdam, they might have more, but their official synagogues owned and run by the Kehillah. Nobody's allowed to dive anywhere else. They took him to court, and he had to get a doctor's thing that he's a sick man. He can't dive in regular shul. All oh, the... It's a guns of business, and they hated the fact that he's bringing in these from Jews from Eastern Europe, and um, they are, and he's encouraging to sit and learn, and uh, he's valorizing Talmud study, which these modern guys didn't like tomorrow, you know, and it's only for people going to be rabbis. The public shouldn't do it. Whereas the old school is everybody should learn Gemara, you know, everybody should at least have a shot at it. Let's put it that way, and. Uh, Man, all these court cases back and forth, it was just, and took it to the government. He knew how to fight them because he was a rich guy himself. And um, the long and the short of it is, they were not able to shut him up. <laughs> okay, he, For years and years, they had a, a um, minion in their house. And uh, he knew how to play politics in such a way that uh, the brothers did, that uh, they could block a lot of the movement moves of the left wing. You understand? And they they were popular in the community. Listen to this. Because they weren't like the other rich people. They actively helped the poor immigrants when they came into the town. A lot of people who immigrated from Germany or from especially Poland came to Amsterdam. You stayed at, you went to this rich guy's house. They could stay there and sleep there for a month or two or three till you work something out. Till you find something. Uh, which is amazing. Right? And, uh, oh, she's got things there. It was courtesy, honesty, and humility. They were received in his house. Uh, because of their strange morals, customs, and traditions, they did not have refuge in our community. Meaning, for the regular Dutch Jews 
who are Europeanizing and, and uh, assimilating to one degree or another, a, a dirty Jew from Eastern Europe shows up and says, you know, I'll give you some money, hit the road, and move somewhere else. Not exactly, obviously, throw. Not exactly, obviously, throw. And these guys did, because they figured anybody moves into town. First of all, part of being an old-fashioned firm Jew is you're supposed to take it seriously. It is, right? And second of all, anybody moves in is, is, is from, he'll help make the atmosphere more from. He's going to buy kosher meat, he's going to attend children, his children want a more Jewish education. They saw it as a plus. And so all these uh, back and forth fights are, 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 are very interesting. And what, what I found in a dissertation was really funny. Who admired what they did? Karl Marx. <laughs> Karl Marx passed through Amsterdam sometimes, and he was a journalist. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I'm just reading you something Karl Marx wrote. Like the, like the great London Jew Montefiore, uh, Hirsch Lawrence sacrificed a lot for those who remain in Jerusalem. His office, notice his business office in the bank, is one of the most picturesque one can imagine. So here's a big bank in Amsterdam. Large groups of Jewish agents of banking houses gather every day, together with numerous theologians. And at his doorstep, all kind of beggars perch. Meaning, they have a shear in the bank, they have a milk in the bank, <laughs> you know, they have a, a seam in the bank. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, you know? And uh, and Karl Marx, even though he's super anti-religious, said at least here's a here's a rich guy that helps the poor. Here's a, you know, at the end of the day, helps the poor. So you can say what you want. Uh, but, you know, what, what counts is what counts. And the result is that they're developed... A uh, from element in uh, Amsterdam and elsewhere, which is very important for what happened as the uh, 19th century uh, went by. And I remember two things in particular, uh, but one goes like this. After a while, when you're living in a country, you just, what's the right word, pick up the, you acculturate. And after all, the firm is in America into baseball, for example, something like that. I'm not, but that's not my personal thing. But my kids are, you know, that's how it goes. So, um, which is probably in Israel, they think it's crazy, you know. Now, in, um, in the case of Holland, in the case of Amsterdam, so, um, as time went by, the decades passed by, um, so, to, let's put it this way. They needed Rabbonim, and to bring in, as the learners would do beforehand, an old-fashioned rabbi with a fur hat who spoke Yiddish, uh, you know, and th that sort of thing, um, in in 1850s, let's say, in Holland, doesn't work anymore for the younger generation. The younger generation, their chal, needs a rabbi that they are, what's the right word, in tune with. Even in Baltimore, uh, I'm not going to name names, but there's a certain person I once ate uh, Friday night at his house, I think it was, or he was there also, and I said, where do you live? And he lives in such such a neighborhood. Oh, you must have by Rabbi so-and-so. No, it's, it's too old for me. I dive in a, a private venue somewhere else. This Rabbi so-and-so has people in their 30s. The guy I'm talking with is in his 20s. The guy in their 30s like, I'll take compared for this guy. That's how the world goes. And Sahini's a rov, Luke's a rov, who's more in tune with the 20s rather than the 30 guys, 30-year-olds. 30 That's how life is. So um, the question then became, 
And this is a great question in the West and in the, in the 19th century in general. How do you uh, successfully bring someone who's from and modern, but not modern in such a way that was stared at from Kaiden, not from in such a way stared at modern? Now, there are only, there's a limited number of Hirschhausen and Hildesheimers out there. Get it? The reason that the uh, Hirsch and Hildesheim became famous was because they were that type. Okay? They're modern, but very from. They're from, but modern. You know, that's it's very unusual who they were, which is why we find them so interesting for study. But they're not a dime a dozen. There weren't any of them. Uh, so what do you do? Well, they found a the guy. Uh, you probably don't know this, but they brought in somebody from Poland who, uh, dinner, uh, Josef Zwick dinner, who um, was from Krakow. You know, Polish guy, grew up in a from environment, by the standards of Krakow, he wasn't from, which means he was a shamer to her mistress and everything. But by the standards of Krakow, he's interested in anything secular, which he was. Well, that makes him not from. that a chassid stabbed him in the back when they, when they went together in yeshiva because they thought he was uh, wasn't from. And that's how life was once upon a time. Could have killed him, and as a result of that incident, he moved out of Poland. I think that was a good move, and he went to Germany dinner, and he eventually got a PhD and stuff like that. He was a from guy. And this Laren, the, the, the one of them had died, the Akiva was still alive, he brought him to Holland. You know, he heard about him. And he said, you're the type of guy I need over here. I'm getting old, and I'm not right for this young generation. We need somebody who can figure out how to be the car of the young generation and keep them within the fold. And we need a guy with a PhD and a, and a, from, a, you know, a modern, but totally from a, 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 aspect, and I'm putting it in your hands. And it actually worked. Uh, this Yosef Tzvi dinner, who I don't think is well-known at all, was the chief rabbi. I mean, he had a hard time at the beginning, but uh, over time, he conquered the opposition, and he became the chief rabbi in Amsterdam, and eventually Holland, and he set up, he reorganized the rabbinical school because the Larens had like a shiva, you know, and they would always block there should be a rabbinical seminary. But he made a rabbinical seminary like the ones he had in Germany, but from. Not so many people are aware of the fact that in Amsterdam was a, a, a variant of the Hildesheimer Cemetery. Seminary, excuse me. Uh, which means, Freudian slip, which means um, that it was 100% Orthodox, even though you had a you know college and, and uh, that sort of thing involved in it. It's not so well known because the Jewish community in Holland is, was smaller. Although... It built up to 100, 100 and some, I don't know, 130, 150,000 Jews. Hitler killed them all, but there was a, not a tiny community at all. And uh, this was done with the blessing of the Laren brothers because they, they were wise enough to see that the, the cause is the Torah and it might require a new Kaylee, you know, uh, and you're the guy. And eventually what this guy did was he set up the semi seminary and he graduated these students with PhDs and he they took over all the rabbinical positions, right? I think they took over every one except one in Holland, so that, and, you know, throughout the Netherlands, which made sure there's not going to be a reform movement, the opposite. You get it? That uh, the rabbis would be very modern, very but, but modern Orthodox, totally from, um, by the way, Rabbi Dinner was a big Zionist and the Mizrahi type, not the Akiva Laren type. And um, Holland just was an interesting story. I mean, I, I don't want to go too long on this. It's, it's, it's not well known. I myself was in Amsterdam a couple of years ago for a couple of hours. I went to Israel at that time with my two girls who were not married at the time. And one of them 
was uh, she's a good organizer. She arranged that we should have a tour for a couple hours in Amsterdam by this a religious guy. He was an army chaplain or something. It was very strange. Uh, it was very interesting. I'm hoping, me, myself, and I am hoping, once the corona is over, one of the plans I have for doing another tour, like we did last year, a very good one in Prague, Vienna, Budapest, I'm thinking one that would involve Amsterdam. Because a very rich history over there. And uh, I was there already. I could check it out myself. And uh, they showed me how the air works over there. It's just interesting, even though the community's small. But uh, but you never know. I, I stopped at a uh, at, at a Bells or Colel or something like that over there. It was, it was surprising. Uh, but uh, this dinner, uh, see, he carried on the legacy over here. And um, and they made it that Holland, at least the Yiddish kind in Holland, never moved away from the Orthodoxy. Although things were pretty shocked because in general, you know, they had an uphill battle against modernity and so forth, you know, in just in general terms. But you could find in Holland uh, an elite of uh, modern but very firm type people, um, you know, with very good secular education, but punctilious in mitzvahs, even in concentration camp, these guys kept the mitzvahs. And so it's a whole part, it's a whole story by itself. Uh, and uh, many ended up in Eretz role of the survivors, many not. Uh, here's the funny part. The one place that they were not... I remember this story. Just, the one place they weren't successful was in Rotterdam, that's, if my memory serves me correctly. Somehow or other, the reform movement, such as you would call it over there, the left-wingers, let's put it that way, they got in that the, who should be the rabbi in uh, Rotterdam not somebody from the Orthodox thing, but from the Jewish Theological Seminary of Breslau, from the conservative. In other words, from the famous seminary, theological seminary in Germany of the conservative movement. So by the standards of Holland, that's like extreme left. And they say, we finally won. And hopefully he'll build up a following in um, Rotterdam, and it'll spread to the rest of Holland, and it'll make a, a, a viable reform movement here. Or at least... Uh, I more exactly call it a conservative Judaism over here, which is at the end of the day a kind of reform, um, but it's more traditional. Now uh, here's the funny part: the guy they did his name was Richard. That was his last name. So he was a Talmud and a graduate of, of the seminary in Breslau. But seminary in Breslau was a funny place. Uh, you know, they had their right wing, their left wing, and their and their middle wing. You know, some students went this direction, some students went that direction. It so happened that this guy who they got in, who was a graduate of conservative seminary, it so happened, he was extremely from. Don't ask me why I went to the seminary, but it could be. It could be. Now, sometimes, once in a while, not often, you get conservative rabbis, or at least you used to when I was young. Here and there, you could get a conservative guy who was very from. I mean, you know. Uh, and he was firmer than the Orthodox. And the reformer going crazy, like, well, you know, we picked the wrong horse over here. As a matter of fact, he became famous for having the best hechsher in Western Europe, <laughs> Dr. Ritter. I think down to the Holocaust. I've seen them, uh, what's it, Sweet Pace of Frank is writing to him and all this. It's, it's very interesting. So the way things went in Holland, and with this I'll conclude, were that the reform movement or the tendencies in that direction were sort of uh, arrested by the unusual uh, situation of these, uh, these brothers who were in a powerful position because they were wealthy, and they were, and they knew how to play politics, Jewish uh, communal politics, and they were able to frustrate the non-from, 
uh, and uh, they couldn't make everybody from as they were. Let me tell you something. These brothers were Hasidim. Again, I didn't notice. I, I got this from this uh, a dissertation that I, I was reading with interest. What do I mean when I say they're Hasidim? I mean Hasidim like Nelson Adler. They weren't Hasidic like in Eastern Europe with a Rebbe. The Hasidim, that they had a lot of Chumras and Pieties, the old Hasidis, they used to whip themselves and fast and, and go frozen mikvah and things, kind of things that the Baal Shemta was not necessarily into. Um, in Amsterdam, in the 1800s, it's extremely unusual. As, as a millionaire, you know? Um... As a matter of fact, he said he needs a million in his house because he's sick. And the reform said, well, you do all those crazy, you know, pietistic practices uh, and you hit yourself, whatever, naturally you're sick. That's your own fault. Um, and so to find a group like this in uh, Amsterdam is not where you would think you would find it. You'd, you'd rather think you'd find it, you know, in, in Krakow or Warsaw or Vilna, someplace like that. And they're not Hershian, right? This is before Hirsch started. They're contemporaries of Hirsch. Let me throw in that when the reform movement began, at the very beginning of the beginning, I'm talking about Reform B, the, the real reform, the, the ideological reform movement, and they had their first meeting in uh, Brunswick, in Brunswick, where they started to pass the first of the reform Takanas. I don't know what they were about to there. I don't remember anymore. Was it Shabbos, Kashrus, Tarmish, Bukhar, all three? You know, whatever it was, uh, he led the charge. This guy, um, I think it was Akiva Laren, maybe it was Hirsch, his brother, uh, he led the charge. He got the, he, he wrote letters, because he's an indefatigable writer. He wrote letters to all the rabbis of the world, Europe especially, and published like this big pamphlet, uh, I forget what it was called, but like a hundred rabbis, blasting the reform. It's all trafe. And this had a big effect. It's not what you think. Because he was able to get the entire Orthodox world, right-wing, center-wing, left-wing, you know what I said? <laughs> Including left-wing, to totally condemn the Reform Movement. It's interesting. Even people who was in the from world were like, I, I'm not so hotsy-totsy, but, but they were from, you get it? No, they were within the Machina, and they recognized that the Reform, as it was developing in Germany in the 1840s, was Chusla Machina, and that gave a tremendous uh, punch to this um, uh, booklet, uh, I forget what it was called, this booklet uh, that, that was published with all the opinions of the rabbis. You can get it today. It's around, probably online. Uh, Sam Sarah Hirsch wrote in it, and uh, but also Sheer, Shlomi Hudarabaport, who was considered not from by the by the frummies, and uh, Shadal, all kind of people, which goes, which, 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 so look what a smart guy Laren was. He showed, he said, listen, the whole Jewish world, no matter how from they are or not from, recognize the Reform Movement is something else. It's not a form of Judaism, it's something else. You know what I'm saying? It's not a form of Judaism, it's something else. The Reform went a tiny that they're on the left wing of the, of the Jewish spectrum. We say, you're not on the left wing of the Jewish spectrum, you're not on the Jewish spectrum. This has been the uh, argument of the From since day one. Uh, the, the Reform have tied it till today. We're part of the Jewish spectrum. We're just on the left. That's all. Uh, if we're in favor of gay marriage or something like this, that's optional within Judaism. It's just on the left. The former saying, like no, no, that's, that's already beyond the pale. It's not true. Just like Jews for Jesus can't say we're on the left. You know what I'm saying? It's a different thing. And so in this little unexpected place of uh, Holland, uh, Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam, places that you never hear of, was 
um, a very interesting um, chapter in uh, modern Jewish history, including the very, very beginnings of the foundation of the uh, modern Yishuv, and uh, the issues he raised at that time that should be in Israel only learning and doing nothing else are in, in an interesting way still, still with us today, although it's not true in the Kolel world today that, uh, you know, a guy sitting alone doesn't have some, uh, some, some business on the side. If his wife can get a job or, or something like that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, great, because uh, how are you going to manage? Um, but anyway, I just thought I'd share these things. So today's not a typical yard side biography, but it, it sort of is and sort of isn't. But uh, I, I, uh, I did it, as I said before, because I saw this uh, um, dissertation. The title here, let me give you the title. It's called Making Jews Dutch, Secular Discourse and Jewish Responses, 1796 to 1848. For the few geeks out there actually going to look it up. Um, and with that, I bid you a, a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.